0: are you ready for today we we are leaving egypt today in our study of exodus it's going to be good if you're just joining us we've been in the study of exodus about six weeks and we're doing what we just read in psalm 105 that we would seek the lord that we would remember his mighty works his marvelous deeds that we would share them and tell them to the generations we want our picture of god to be increasingly greater and greater and greater, so that our trust in God continues to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Despite our circumstances, in spite of what came this week or what this week brings, we want to know God so that we would trust Him in all the situations that life brings. And we know that that is many. And so we want a picture of God, not as we would imagine Him to be, not as we would fashion him to be, but as he truly is. We want to know who God, as he has revealed himself to be, as he truly is. And so we do that in different ways um, throughout the year, but we, we do it on the weekends through opening up the scriptures. We open up God's word and say, God, show us who you are. Reveal to us who you are, that we would grow in our trust of you. Every single day. And so we're doing that through God's epic narrative of Exodus. This is the historical account of what God has done in freeing his people, Israel, out of a place of bondage in Egypt. And brings them to a place of promise. That we would know God as rescuer, deliverer, and savior. He's already revealed himself as the one who sees and hears and knows the sufferings of his people. And is active. That he came down. He tells Moses in chapter 3, I will bring my people out of Egypt with my strong hand. The strong hand of God is going to bring the people out of Egypt. And, And we've spent six weeks looking at the struggle of being in bondage and the hope of freedom and asking, where is God? What's he up to? And then God bringing mighty works and displays to Pharaoh, who God knows to have a hard heart. But it's not God's knowledge that That Pharaoh has a soft heart or that his heart will soften to liberate the people. But that in his hardness of heart, he will drive them out. And so these wonders and miracles called plagues have been in Egypt for some time. And they have progressed in intensity till this final plague that we looked at last week, which was the Passover. The death of the firstborn in Egypt. Which spoke all the way back to Exodus 4, 22 and 23. That God said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. They belong to me. And that you are to release my firstborn. But in the hardness of your heart, in the stubbornness of your heart, if you will not, then I will take the firstborn of Egypt. And we saw these plagues progress in intensity until that final plague comes. And the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is there. And he frees the people. He drives them out of their slavery and bondage, which they've known for 400 years. And they are free. After 400 years, it seems like in an evening, they are free, set free. They're leaving Egypt. And all I want to know is this. How long was it until Moses' son asked, are we there yet? That's all I want to know. I mean... You're 10 steps out. I just want to know which kid went to their parents and said, I have to use the bathroom. And you're like, come on. I told you to go to the bathroom before we left. We just passed the last gas station for 200 miles. Just kidding. Okay, those are the thoughts I have. Let me give you some real thoughts. From the Bible. Here's what God does. is their first step out into freedom. is to set up the practice of remembrance. To remind the people of who God is. What God has done And whose they are. Who they belong to. And so they set up this practice right on the first steps of Exodus. This is chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. It belongs to me. So the first thing he says is consecrate. That's this word of sacrifice. To belong to. Set up this practice that you would remind yourself who you belong to. Because freedom is both from something and for something. Or maybe more specifically, the freedom that we see here is the freedom from someone, for someone. That God has set his people free from the bondage and death in Egypt. But not unto themselves, but for the family of God. They have been set free from death and bondage in Egypt, and they have been set free into life and freedom with God. And this practice of the firstborn is to always be a remembrance to them of what God did in Egypt, what God accomplished for his children in bringing them out of bondage and saving his people. And so look at verse 11. This is a practice that carries on through the wilderness and carries on in the promised land and carries on for generations. It says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Meaning this, that you can't sacrifice a donkey to the Lord. It's an unclean animal. So in order to keep the donkey, you are to have another animal in its place to take a substitution that you would then use a a lamb to actually redeem, purchase back this life of the firstborn. It says, and when in time to come, your sons ask, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. From the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Purchase back. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So he takes this mark that's going to happen in the community of Israel for all generations. He says, this will be a remembrance that you'll never forget who is God, what he's done, whose you are. He says, you'll take the firstborn, those that open up the womb of men and women, and those who open the womb of livestock and animals, and those will belong to me. And you will have to redeem them. And we see this practice even with Mary and Joseph, the father of Jesus, That Jesus, the firstborn of Mary, they go to the temple as prescribed and offer this sacrifice. Just imagine this. As a community, how often are there firstborns in your community? Amongst families, neighbors, amongst the livestock? It's probably happening all the time. Weekly, daily maybe, monthly. That all the time this is happening to where people would remember what God has done in saving them from a place of bondage in Egypt, and bringing them to a place of promise and freedom that would belong to God. And perhaps, over time, your sons and daughters will ask you, hey, mom, dad, um, not everybody does this. Did you know that? Not everybody does this, and I'm kind of wondering why we do this. And as mom and dad, you're to tell them, it's so that you never forget. It's so that you never forget. You remember what God has done. Let me tell you of what God has done in rescuing and saving us from a place called Egypt. And this will be a practice that will always be a reminder every single day, every single week, when you see this, when you have to act on this, you will remember who is God, what he's done, whose you are. There's another practice that we talked about last week with Passover that's attached to the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this Feast of Unleavened Bread is also a reminder in their annual calendar as they celebrate the Passover of their exodus from Egypt. This unleavened bread is there's no time for the bread to rise. And so they were, they were to bake their breads without any leaven or yeast in it because they were going to depart Egypt quickly. And God uses this simple piece to remind his people of what he did and, what, and whose they are. So go, let's go back to verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you come out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Verse 8. You shall tell your sons on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. And as a memorial between your eyes, that for the Lord may be your, sorry be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. It's to remember the strong hand, the mighty works of who God is. There's this time, the Passover, in which you're going to remember by eating bread that doesn't have any yeast in it. That hasn't risen. That's flat. And your kids will ask you, I don't like this bread very much. Mom, I like the other bread that you make. Like the fluffy bread, the the puffy bread. Why do we eat these crackers? He says, son, daughter, it's a reminder that we would never forget who is the Lord, what he has done, and whose we are. Let me tell you, we were in bondage for 400 years. And then in an evening, God acted and brought us out. And set us free. That is the God that we serve. That's the God we pray to. That's the God who has a mighty hand of deliverance. Never forget. Never forget. Now, leaven here in the story is particularly here because that speaks of the the rapid exit from Egypt. Though this is the first mention of of God's people using it in in this feast, there's a fuller understanding of leaven that gets unfolded through the scriptures, particularly with Jesus, that Jesus points to leaven as a symbol of sin, that sin should not be in your life. And so, like leaven permeates all the loaf of bread, so sin, even if it's just a small sin, will permeate the total life of a person. And Jesus often points out, be weary of the leaven, the falsities of the pharisees the leaders be be careful of their false teachings because that will be like leaven it'll permeate your whole theology in fact paul points it out and says okay pointing to the passover that jesus christ has fulfilled you are completely a new being like a new lump of dough and so you are to be without leaven now here in exodus when we're talking about baking bread without yeast without leaven it's not as though they had like these fisherman packets of active yeast And Moses said, okay, put the fisherman packets away. Don't take any of those out. That's not how you would put yeast or leaven into a new lump. What you would do is you'd go to a lump that was already fermented, that already had yeast in it, and you would pinch off a piece of yesterday's loaf that you were maybe going to bake today, and you would take that piece and you would put it into a new lump of dough that perhaps you'd bake tomorrow. And so you'd always pinch off a little piece and you'd put it in the new dough. And even just a small piece of the old dough would ferment the entire loaf. And here's a picture of the the saving work of God to bring you out of Egypt and be something altogether new and free from the life that you have known. Philip Ryken, an Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. God wanted to do something more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. That the people had only known slavery. They had only known what it was to be in, in Egypt for generations. Who were born and died in slavery. The way they thought. The way they acted. The way they participated. Was mixed with Egyptian. And God said, no, we, we don't want any part of Egypt to be with my people. Why people? are altogether new and different. Paul picks this up in speaking of this Passover. They remember this unleavened bread in our position with Jesus Christ. This is 1 Corinthians chapter five. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's Paul saying? God has redeemed you and saved you, and you truly are an unleavened piece of bread, something new. He's redeemed you. Don't go back and pinch off small pieces of your old life and try to hide them in your new. If you go take old sins and you take that little sin, that you think no one knows about, that little sin, that that habit, or that old love affair that you had in bondage, and you bring that into this new lump with Jesus Christ, and you just try to hide it in the corner. It'll permeate the whole loaf. It'll infect every corner of your life. And so the question is, okay, this is why You have Moses saying, okay, cleanse the house. Find no leaven in your homes. This is the seriousness of holding and remembering this feast. For you are going to be a new lump. Let me ask you this. Are there small lumps of sin that you have hidden away in the corners of your house? That you've tucked in the closets, hidden under the beds, Put in the office, the living room, then no one's going to know. It's just a little, little bit of who I used to be. There's no place for that. There's no place for that. Cleanse the whole loaf. Why? Because you truly are cleansed. You are a new dough. You're a new life, altogether new. And for us, there's no place to pinch off a little bit of our old life in Egypt, and try to hide it away in our new life with God. So these are the practices of remembering what God has done, who God is, and whose we are, that we have been freed for someone. We belong now to God, and we are getting a new picture of what it means to be the children of God, freed from Egypt, brought into the place of promise. So he goes on. That they are now going to be free. That after 430 years, they're now stepping their first steps out of Egypt into freedom. Here's my question. What are their first steps? Because when you see it, it's so unusual. To see their first steps and the direction of their first steps is so strikingly odd. You have to understand why God establishes these as their first steps. To understand what their first steps are, I want to take you to a place in your Bible that you probably have not been to in a really long time. Even if you read the Bible in an entire year last year, you probably didn't go to this place in your Bible. So I'm going to show you their very first steps from the maps in the back. So go to the maps in the back of your Bible. How many of you guys visited the maps in the back of your Bible this year? Be honest. Oh man, heroes of the faith. Heroes of the faith. Okay, there are several maps that kind of give some insights of what's happening at different time periods in the Bible. Here's one of the exodus from Egypt. And there's a couple different routes that are possible for them to take. We're not sure exactly which one they took. But there's one key element of all the routes. Here's Egypt where they're enslaved. This is actually modern-day Egypt over here. Saudi Arabia is down over here. The Jordan and modern-day Israel is right up here. They're in Egypt and their first steps to the promised land is south, is, is away from the promised land. Now, if, if I'm part of this party, I wanna know why we're going in the wrong direction. Imagine this, because this is kind of the picture you have to have in your mind when we see Israel depart Egypt. Imagine I, I convince you that you should join me on a journey up to Yellowstone. I love Yellowstone. I've been to Yellowstone several times. There's beautiful things in Yellowstone. It's the fall. We should go. I mean, to see God's glory, it's gonna be like a worshipful event. Follow me, and you're like, all right, let's do it. In fact, I convinced you to ride with me so you hop in my car, and as a caravan, we head out Erie Parkway up to I-25, and we turn right and go south. And you think, okay, maybe we have to go down to Cabela's off I-25 to get some stuff for Yellowstone. There, I get some stuff to, you know, enjoy the park or something. And then we pass Cabela's, and we're going through Denver, and you're thinking, the first time we stop, I'm going to have a conversation with our fearless leader, Thomas, that we are heading south down to Colorado Springs, when we should be heading north. I mean, if he really wants to go to Yellowstone, doesn't he know it's at the top of Wyoming and on the border of Montana? And here we are going down to down to Colorado Springs. And so we stop in Colorado Springs and you grab my ear and you say, ah, just I, don't, I, I know you said you've been there a lot and I know we're all following you, but um, I think we're supposed to go the other way. And I say, don't worry. Soon we'll be in Albuquerque where we can pick up 40 and go to Oklahoma City. And you're thinking, okay, how time out time. We need a new leader. We ain't never going to get up to Yellowstone going this way. Why does God take them south? Well, he tells us. I love the Bible. So verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines to the north. Although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The God who hears and sees and knows your heart knows your fears. And he knows his people, their faith in him is still rather young. He says, if we go north, we're going to run into all kinds of armies between here and Canaan. And if they come and they see war, knowing their hearts, they're going to run back to what's familiar. They're going to run right back to Egypt. They're not ready to trust me in these things. And so I need to shape and form them into my people. And so we're going to go south into the wilderness. And there'll be a spiritual formation that happens in the wilderness that can only happen in the seasons of wilderness where old things of Egypt need to be pruned off and new things of the kingdom need to be built in. And they can only happen if we go south. May I suggest this? For those in the room who want to know why God is moving so slow to bring you to a place of promise. You've confessed your sins. Others have confessed sins. But why is he so slow in changing hearts, in restoring relationships, in bringing me to a new place? May may I just suggest That it's his mercy. That it's just his mercy and his kindness to take you the long way round and go south. And the only way that you can trust that is if you know him. Now Israel, they they can't see him. They don't know him. Like, what is God? He's, He's new to us. All we've known is this. And this is a beautiful picture of the pilgrimage of being a Christian. That God brings you to a place that's familiar to you. And now says, okay, now we're gonna live this way. And you're gonna pray, and you're gonna be part of the community, and there's gonna be this hope of a new day and a better future. And you say, that's so foreign, I've never seen it. I know, you're gonna follow me through uncharted territories to the promised land. See, they've never seen a brochure of what the promised land looks like. They've never seen a picture of it. No one ever came back and told them about you know, House Hunters International and all the great beachfront properties. They just have to trust God. But they don't yet. God in his kindness manifests a visible mark of his presence for them. If they're going to follow him, he gives them a little bit more confidence in manifesting his presence. Check this out. Verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now this is the tension the Bible has to resolve constantly. How does a transcendent God that's holy and awesome and beyond us and we can't even look upon him lest we'd be ruined, yet his imminence, his personal presence in our life, how do we see it and know it? And throughout the Old Testament, we see that God makes his divine presence visible in this picture of cloud and fire. That the cloud came down on the mountain and spoke with Moses out of fire. That with the tabernacle, when God's presence filled the tabernacle, it came as a cloud on the tabernacle. In Solomon, as God's presence filled the temple, there was a visible cloud that filled the temple that people could see. This is the kindness of God to say, I know you don't trust the plan, but I will put my divine presence that will not depart from your eyes before you day and night to lead you into the wilderness. Now they lead in the wilderness in a place that even Pharaoh himself says they must be confused. They should have gone north. And there God has them wander around and leads them into what others call the cul-de-sac of death. One way in to the seashore and no way out. And at this point, we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened again. And Pharaoh, after grieving the loss of all that he's seen, says, Let's go get them. Let's go get them and bring them back. Let's chain them back up. What have we done? And he gets every chariot every warrior, and goes in hot pursuit to bring back his slaves. And Israel sees this army of Egypt approaching, knowing that their back is against the sea. And they feel completely helpless and are stricken with fear, and they cry out to God. This is what they say. When Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, this is verse 10 of 14, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Here's the thing, my love language is sarcasm, and that is so sarcastic. Like, you brought us out here because there weren't enough graves back home? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, they are just giving it to Moses. Oh my gosh, it's so good. <laughs> then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the wilderness. And doesn't the Lord know their hearts? This is why he does not lead them north. And they just come out and they they say, God, what are you doing? And after they've done yelling at God, they go find God's man. Okay, can't hear you. Let's go find God's man. What are you doing? We told you. Leave us alone. It would have been better to stay in Egypt. Now this is similar to their response when Moses came into Egypt. This is chapter 5. With the announcement of freedom coming. That Moses had met with God and God was going to set them free. And they celebrated and followed in the first steps of freedom. And then Pharaoh's heart was hardened, if you remember this. And he burdened them with greater burdens, having to gather their own straw for the brick making that they were tasked with. And seeing the hardness of Pharaoh's heart towards them, they came out and they found Moses. Remember this? And they said, curse you, Moses. You're the worst since you've shown up. And since you've brought your God, more evil has come on us. And then Moses turned and echoed that same sentiment to God. Why have you done this to your people? Why have you brought more evil upon your people? And here again we see a place of fear with Pharaoh drawing near and the people crying out to God. But Moses, who has seen God move, who has grown in his vision and understanding of who God is, does not join them in their cries. Moses is learning to trust God. And so Moses tells them this. This is verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Just just watch the Lord's strength deliver you and save you today. One thing you need to do, stop talking. You need to stop talking and be still and quiet and silent for the Lord Will move, or will move. And here comes the Egyptian army, and the, the pillar that was leading them in the front circled back behind. The pillar that was guiding them is now guarding them from the destruction of Egypt. And there, the pillar has hemmed them in, and there, the sea is at their backs, and it seems hopeless. There's no way out of this. And then God does the most remarkable thing. The sea opens. The sea opens. And Israel begins to walk on dry land. And then Egypt follows closely behind. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God did this impossible task. That There they are with their backs up against the wall. There's the threat of, you know who showed up? Their past showed up. They thought they were free, and their past shows up wanting to re enslave them, to reconquer them, to condemn them. And there in that moment, God does the impossible and opens a way of salvation, and then closes it upon the Egyptians and swallows them up. So there's no longer any threat of their past as Israel moves forward into the wilderness. In narrative form, it's it's particularly helpful to pick up on symbolism and imagery. Remember back in the beginning of Exodus that the Egyptians were grabbing Hebrew children and throwing them into the Nile, water, and here the waters of the sea bring judgment and swallow up Egypt. And now they see the mighty hand, the salvation of God, Against just the hand of Egypt. They've been freed completely from the hand of Egypt, that they would know the mighty strength of who God is, what God has done, and whose they are. And they are to remember that throughout all history. This Exodus becomes the pinnacle moment of which Israel continues to look back to to know this is who God is. That It's been said that Israel looked to the Exodus like Christians look to the cross to know who God is and where their salvation came from. This becomes important throughout the rest of Exodus and the entire Old Testament. That you see at the Exodus 20, when they're establishing the law, the Ten Commandments, before a single law is established for the people. God says this to them. This is Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then begins, you shall have no other gods before me. But remember this, first and foremost, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Joshua reminds the people of the same thing. The Psalms speak of this routinely, that God is the great rescuer who brought them out of Egypt. You get to the prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah that speak of, remember that God is your God, and he brought you out of slavery. By his strong hand, trust in his strong hand. And all of this is the foundation, the signpost to the greater exodus. Remember this? The greater exodus and the greater Moses is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ sees us in our state with our backs up against sin and death and there ain't no hope and judgment's coming and then god in his grace does the most remarkable thing and sends his son jesus christ to live the life that none of us live to die the death we all deserve to die that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the fulfillment of everything the exodus was pointing towards. Is Jesus, the greater exodus, from sin and from death. And the way that you follow Jesus is that you recognize there's sin in your life. It's in every corner of my life. I can't get it out of my life. I need someone else to get it out of my life. And so you repent You say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that I've lived. I'm sorry for the way that doesn't honor you. I'm changing my direction, and I'm following you to freedom. I'm saved from sin, and I'm for the family of God. And now I'm walking in the newness of life. That's what we are celebrating. After this great exodus, here's the song of Moses. Chapter 15 recounts to us these praises that you can only imagine are sung. In the other side of the sea. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. That's what happens here in in Exodus. Jesus Christ, the son of God, who becomes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world in his greater exodus, is joined together in the book of Revelation, which we sing about in the final days. The final days of judgment, referred to as the plagues. This is Revelation 15. And those martyrs who have not only crossed through the seed, but are victorious on the sea, they sing this song. revealed that's the song of moses the song of the lamb sung at the end of days see god's people setting up the consecration of the firstborn the feast of unleavened bread was to always remember was always to remember and jesus christ the son of god who became the lamb of god fulfilled the passover as we saw last week and takes the bread from the table and the cup from the table and points them to the work of the cross And says, do this now in remembrance of me. And so we take the Lord's Supper this morning. And when your children ask, why do we do this? Why do we get past a small piece of unleavened bread? Why do I get a little cup that has juice in it? Not not all my friends do this. Why do we do this? You tell them that you never forget. You never forget the love of God. What God has done in his son Jesus Christ. Who God is His victory over death and whose we are as the children of God. Let us remember. If you're helping with the Lord's Supper, would you come forward at this point? Lord, our Savior, in the silence of this room may we remember your salvation for us not by our own strength not by our own works but the mighty gracious loving hand of god lord we all confess in this room that we're sinners lord, we confess our sin to you because you are just to forgive us of our sins and you are right to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and restore us back into right relationship. Lord, would you capture our hearts again in the work of your son Jesus Christ on the cross that we would restore him to his rightful place in our life as first and foremost, no other gods before you, No little G's before you. Lord, help us to remember. And in our remembering, Lord, would you continue to build and deepen our trust in you. In spite of all of the issues that we have, may we trust you. Amen.